The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Clea Newman. Clea Newman is the youngest daughter of one of the most philanthropic and famed acting couples, as we all know, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And Clea learned from a very young age that giving back is a way of life. Paul Newman is one of the most respected names in philanthropy, having launched several charitable endeavors, including Newman's Own, which most of us know about and which gives away all of its profits to charity and Serious Fun Children's Network, which is a global network of camps for children with serious illnesses. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Clea. Thank you, Catherine. I'm so I'm so glad to be here. So you're the Senior Director of Special Initiatives at Serious Fun Children's Network, where we're here to talk about philanthropy, giving back, uh, you, a lifelong family tradition in your family, and also specifically about Serious Fun Children's Network. So uh, where should we start? Let's start with giving back. I mean, that is a lifelong tradition in your family uh, with your dad and, and with your mom, the whole family. So I guess you come by philanthropy rightfully. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I, for a very long time, thought I wanted to, to go into law, um, worked for a law firm for a very short period of time and realized maybe that just wasn't for me. And uh, my parents were the ones that got me focused into philanthropy and it's been history since then. Um, I really, I, I was so blessed because I initially started working right when Newman's Own, uh, when the company started, and working with my dad, you know, in the foundation and and giving away funds, which was such extraordinarily. Um, it just was incredibly interesting realizing all the extraordinary things that people are doing in the world. And well, you know, it's interesting, Clea, because you focused on your dad's and your family's philanthropic endeavors. And, you know, lots of times the children of celebrities get are, and you were uh, thought about being a lawyer as well, but you didn't get into the acting piece of it, or they didn't, it, which is kind of unique, isn't it? I mean, that that was the what you focused on, their, the, the giving and the philanthropy rather than becoming a celebrity celebrity or a movie star like your parents? Uh, well, I, I <laughs> being being the child of of two movie stars has is a mixed blessing. Um, you know, you you grow up with uh numerous advantages and a lot of disadvantages. So, I luckily had parents who said, 
you know, if this is something that really speaks to you and you can't imagine not being an actor, then you should pursue it. But if you you don't feel that way and it's kind of, yeah, I could do it, I could not do it, then maybe don't do it because, you know, it's it's a complex way to to spend your time. It's a tricky, you know, it's tricky, you know, when you're when you're truly famous and you're, you know, you lose a lot of your privacy, your, you know, your family is kind of in the open eye all the time. And it's, you know, it's, you get a lot of perks, but you also lose a lot on the other end. So it's, it's tricky if you don't want to be a really public person. Yeah. And then did did you feel at a young age, or I was going to say at what age that, hey, this isn't for me, or this is difficult for me to be such a public person, or as I see my parents out there, I don't want to do that. Um, I mean, just, was that a a choice, like cognitive choice or just emotionally, that doesn't fit for me. I mean, you're the youngest, the youngest of how many kids? Uh, well, I'm, I'm the youngest of of three between my parents. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I think that I, you know, I did go to acting school briefly. Um, I, I do kind of, you know, like being out in the, in the public, but I wasn't quite sure that I was prepared for it full tilt. And I, you know, I, I took that into advisement with what my parents had told me all along. So I, you know, because it really wasn't something that was a priority for me necessarily to become an actor and to really get out there and do it. I mean, I, I pursued, I, I, I pursued show jumping and horses more than I did acting. So I focused on on that and and children really, and um, honestly, being involved with our camps and philanthropy really spoke to me at a very young age. I was, I and was so, very, what age? I was and very I want to like. Well, I, I have. I just interrupt you because when you say a young age. Uh, because I'm, what? How young were you? I mean, I'm not. You know, children aren't necessarily. I guess. Uh, ones who are necessarily interested in philanthropy, we like to be, children like to be given to rather than to give. So how did, did your parents, what did they do to kind of, to instill that in you at a young age? And how old were you? Well, I can remember very, very young, you know, six, seven, eight years old, having my mother say to me, you know, honey, if you're having a bad day, sometimes the best thing to do is actually give back to somebody who's having a harder time than you are. So, you know, it it really did hit home. I mean, we were we were taught about giving back and and understanding that we were incredibly lucky and that there were a lot of people that were having a harder time than we were and to understand that from a very young age and and we really all embraced it. I mean, all, everyone in my family embraced it some in different ways. I mean, you know, some of my sisters are involved with the environment, some are involved with children, some are involved with, you know, organics or, you know, health food or whatever it is, you know, but there's, but everybody's involved in something because philanthropy really spoke to all of us, really, in in one way or another. For me, I kind of made it my life's work, mostly because I truly enjoyed it. And I I took to heart what my mother said to me is that it, it really does make you feel good and you also are, are accomplishing so many things. When you talk about accomplishing so many things, because I think that's an important point, it's 
money is not the only part of the equation. There's lots more to giving back, lots more. Philanthropy is, is not just giving money. Talk to us about that. And then let's relate it to the Serious Fund Children's Network. Well, I mean, you know, I think that, if, you know, if you're if just getting back to the basics, I mean, if you are a family or, you know, with children or whatever, the most important thing is to find causes that your family feels passionate about. You know, and and really put your time and energy behind it. Um, if you're a parent, be prepared to set a good example. You know, if your children watch you really putting not just your money where your mouth is, but your time and energy into giving back, then your children will learn that and want to be a part of that. You know, and the last thing is, it's really important to give your time. It's, you know, if, if you're... If financially you can write a check, that's incredibly important to all organizations, and they all need money to run, but they also need manpower, and they need hands, and they need feet on the ground to do whatever they're doing, whether it's, you know, walking a, walking a dog for the ASPCA or, you know, serving food at a, at a food bank. I mean, it's, you know, people, they need, people need the time. You know, the charities need the time, and it really does engage you when you when you see how much benefit you're doing by being there and being a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and, and Clea, don't you, you think some people are, some people can do both. They donate their time and their money, but isn't it also okay? Maybe you can only donate money, or maybe you can only donate time, and you have to understand who you are and what you do best, because you talked about having a passion for what you do. Um, but so those of us maybe can only donate money. Do we have to feel guilty if we can't or we're not really good at volunteering our time? And, uh, not at all. I mean, like I said, Charities need charities need money to run, but I will say that having it be a, a priority, it's you know it's just like prioritizing, um, you know, going to the movies or going out with your family or something. It, it's a it's a really productive family activity, even if you only do it once a year. It's just it's good to actually get out there and be a part of something in your community. You know what I mean? It makes you feel more engaged in your community, I feel. Yeah, it really it connects you with the community, individuals, groups, whatever it is. And, um, and you I meet think... such interesting people, which is another thing that, you know, that is really engages you, is you realize that there are extraordinary people doing all types of extraordinary things. Yeah, you're so right. I, uh, for a while, this many years ago, I volunteered for the Ronald McDonald House, and I was always amazed by what appeared to it seemed that people who appeared maybe to have very little gave so much, and I was just always so amazed by that. But um, but let's get back to you know because you are the I want to talk specifically about the Serious Fund Children's Network because oh, <laughs> that's what you do. That's uh, you're I mean you're the senior director of special initiatives. So. What and and uh, uh, listeners can go to seriousfundnetwork.org for more information about uh, Clea and the work that she's doing. But what is it? What is Serious Fund Children's Network? When was it established, and what do you do? Well, Serious Fund Children's Network was established. It it actually was called no number of years ago the Association of Hole in the Wall Gang Camps, named after our first camp 
that we created twenty over twenty six years ago. My father founded. Um, uh, it's hard to believe that long ago, but um, we now we changed our name. It it got a little bit too complicated with having a camp that was named Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, and then having the association of of camps be called the same thing. It was a little too complicated, so we created the name Serious Fun Children's Network mostly because my father used to call our camps serious fun. It was serious for us putting on the programs and and creating this incredible environment for the kids and just pure fun for them. So that's how we came up with the name. And Serious Fun Children's Network is our family of camps. We have 30 camps and programs all over the world, and we support 75,000 children and their families this, uh, this last year. So who are the families and who are the children? These are camps. I mean, they're all obviously different kinds of camps, but this is a special kind of camp. So describe the camp for us. Who are the kids who go there and or the the families? Uh, what, what are exactly um, what type of camp is it? Uh, they're, they're camps for seriously ill children and their families. Um, our campers have, we, we actually serve 50 different diseases, um, everything from cancer to blood-related diseases to severe diabetes to you know, brain tumors, uh, children on ventilators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of our camps run at least, at least two-thirds of the year. Um, we run regular camp pro- programming. Then we also have family weekends. We have sibling sessions for just children, um, for just siblings of of our campers. Um, and we do all types of outreach. We have hospital outreach where we bring camp to hospitals. We bring camp out into the community. Um, and it's really just allowing these our kids to kick back, as my father would say, and, and raise a little hell and, and really get back to the business of being a child again. They miss so much when they're in the hospitals getting treatment, and they miss all the rela- relationships and having a support system of their own peers. And so camp gives them back all of that and allows them to kind of get back to, to being a kid again. So these are kids with serious illnesses, obviously, chronic illnesses, or I assume, I mean, you describe some of them, serious uh, diabetes, cancer, all of those kind of blood disorders. Um, how does it work? How, if one, and it's free of charge, all of these camps, these 30 camps and their programs are free of charge for the kids and their families. Let's yeah. say somebody uh, wants to send their kids to that camp or be a part of it. What do they do? I mean, how do, do they apply? I mean, what's the actual process? Well, you, uh, you do apply. Um, a lot of them are reached out to through their hospitals, through social services, um, and they learn about camps through other parents, through their hospitals. Um, but most of the hospitals that we work with will actually, if they have a child that they feel um, this would be an appropriate program for them, they will actually tell the parents. And then you just need to apply to the camp. Um, you know, we, we have a, a camp right in Saratoga called Double H Ranch, um, doublehranch.org, if anybody wants to check it out. And 
um, provides extraordinary programs. They even take their kids skiing and everything. It's pretty amazing. That's incredible. These kids get to go skiing. I mean, I'm a big uh, proponent of camp. I think camp is great. I mean, I went to camp. It provides, well, some of the things you already mentioned, connection to other kids, and in this case, kids with serious illnesses, and also families who have to take care of the children with serious illnesses. It's a lot of mutual support, I would imagine, uh, which is great. Yeah. It's so it's so important, um, really, for for the campers. Really having peers and a, a support system of other kids that understand what they're going through is an extraordinary. I mean, it it, it benefits them so much, but equally for the families. I mean, for for parents, and you know, being with other parents who under, really understand what they're going through. And siblings really associating with other siblings and, and really having making good friends of other siblings who understand what they're dealing with. I mean, it, so it these really children, makes the family, the family whole, you know? Yeah. Well, I was thinking, that as you're talking, the children and the families, I would imagine, and you've served over, what, 518,000 children and families from more than 50 countries, that yeah. they would... After camp, that's not the end of the relationship, that they continue these relationships, I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, Now, once the kids go to camp, are they allowed to come back the next year, or do you get a whole new group of kids? Nope. Uh, We have our kids return until truly they age out. Um, And what we even have, so most of our programs run to either 16 or 17. Then we have kind of a, a junior counselor so, you know, they all have different names for um, it each, because each camp is their own 501c3, and they have their own names. You know, we have Painted Turtle out in California, and we have, you know, Double H Ranch in, um, in Saratoga, and then we have the original Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, and then we have ones in Europe and ones in Florida, and, you know, we have them all over the place. Um, and they all have different names, but it's it's interesting that, you know, the the whole... The whole focus of the kids coming to camp and, I don't know, pers- kind of pursuing this. I'm totally losing my train of thought. That's okay. Pursue, yeah. Sorry, there was so much noise in my background. I, you can't yeah. hear it, but it's like. Yeah, but well, before we went on the show, Clea and I were talking because she's, uh, there's construction going on outside of her <laughs> office or outside of her studio. I, can I can't hear, hear it, and I don't think anybody like, else can. I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's okay, because I have another question. We can go back to that one if we want to. We don't have to. But okay. uh, I was thinking, uh, you have a lot of stories, I'm sure. I mean, you've been doing this for you know, many, many years. So is there any story or stories that really kind of stand out for you that you could share with us? Oh, boy. Uh, Just pick I one think, of them. I, yeah. think, I think one of my favorite stories um, with my dad is my my dad was at camp and eating lunch with a bunch of a cabin, a cabin of little boys, and he was sitting at picnic table, and at the end of each each end of the picnic table was our you know our lemonade cartons, and this little boy kept looking at Dad and then looking at the lemonade carton and then looking at Dad and looking at the lemonade carton and he finally looked at Dad and he said, "Excuse me, are you Paul Newman?" <laughs> and Dad said, "Why, yes, I am." And he got this very concerned look on his face and he said, "Are you missing?" 
That's a cute story. That's a but very the, <laughs> the funniest. The funniest response, though, to me is that my dad looked. He didn't understand. You know, dad didn't quite get it at the very first minute when the child said that, and he he looked at the little boy, and then he looked at the carton, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no! This is my food product. You know, I'm." You know, we make the lemonade, we give all the profits to charity, and blah, blah, blah. And the little boy was having none of it. And he looked at him, and he shook his head, and he said, No, I'm not kidding. This is really serious. <laughs> I just love that. The little boy was having absolutely none of it. He was like, No, you don't understand. If your picture is on a carton, that means you're missing. You're missing, exactly. <laughs> he wasn't going to let go of that. He that was, was not it for letting him. go of it. He's like, No, this is really serious. <laughs> And I just love the fact that this little boy was so concerned for Dad, you know, with all of his struggles that he was going through. What about the kids? Uh, Because obviously some of these kids can't come back the next year. You lose some of the kids. And how does that fit into the program? Because I would imagine, especially the ones who have, uh, you know, maintained connections with the other children at camp, um, is there anything that's sort of built into the program that that helps them deal with the loss? Yeah, we yeah we we do have um, you know psychiatrists or psychologists usually at camp. Um, we're most most of the full time counselors and and the the full time staff is very well trained uh, to handle all this stuff. Um, and we, you know we go through it a lot. I I when I was volunteering. This was a number of years ago, but when I was working for our first camp, Hole in the Wall, um, I lost a little one of my buddies, um, and I was completely dumbstruck. He and I just had such a close relationship, and I had a very close relationship with the family, and I was very lucky because I reached out to all the staff at at camp, and they really helped me through it. Um, You know, they're... The full-time staff is is very knowledgeable. Yeah. So the full-time staff, obviously, these counselors are somewhat, uh, I was going to say, more trained in, uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm a social worker, but in the, as social workers, psychologists, uh, than say at a, an ordin- a, a normal, an ordinary camp, a regular camp, I guess you would call it. So uh, if one wanted to, let's say, be a counselor, you know, we have a lot of listeners who may say, you know, that may be something I'd like to do. What are some of the criteria for being an a-, a counselor? Um, just that you have to be an adult. Um, first and foremost, so most of the time it's it's nineteen, eighteen, or nineteen and above. Different camps have different ages, um, and you know that you do get a full kind of background check, um, obviously, to come in and work with the kids. Um, but it's a an amazing, it's a great opportunity for college kids to volunteer over the summer. We have full time volunteer positions. Um, we have full time kind of paid counselor positions where, you know, you literally work as a for for the whole summer. Um, it's a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal um, opportunity. And we also have week-long volunteer opportunities um, for, I mean, it's all ages, but there's, you know, obviously a lot of college kids do that, and it, it it's great. Uh, I... When I volunteered there, I had a lot of friends who volunteered as college students, and they actually ended up changing their major and going into medicine because they were so struck by the kids and and 
the Extraordinary program. So it's a great opportunity. Yeah, so it, changed every... me, it changed me so much as a person. I can't tell you the first time I volunteered. Yeah. And on an ongoing basis, and then obviously what you're doing now, I think, you know, oftentimes people say when they when they give back like you you do and the people that you're talking about, you get more you get more from it sometimes than the people that you are the kids or the families that you're giving to. Um, it's it, it's so I mean, and I'm hearing you say that kind of overwhelming in terms of what you've gotten back. Um, how is that? My, you know, my dad yeah. used to say that about him, about being with the kids all the time. He used to say, you know, I, he said, I almost feel guilty because you go to camp and you give 110% of yourself and you walk away and you realize that when you're, when you drive out of camp that you've gotten 150% back, you know, I mean, it's true. You really, you gain, you gain so much just being in an environment where your eyes are opened yeah, it's uh, your father would have been how old? Ninety years old next, this year. Next year, uh, January twenty sixth of twenty fifteen, he would have been ninety. Um, and next year, we're actually doing a year long celebration in his honor of what would have been his ninetieth year at all the camps. So we have a few minutes left. Tell us about the year long celebration. Well, obviously, he would have been very proud of you, I would think, and no. excited. <laughs> I hope so, but um, it's you know I'm just so proud of the program. I I uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything different. Um, so I was I was very lucky that he was smart enough to send me down this road. So he was a, he was a very smart man. <laughs> Very um, savvy man. Two very more minutes. Okay. Yeah, very savvy. So we have two minutes left. So just tell us what is the initiative for the year? Is there, you know, can you give us kind of just in a couple sentences what the overall initiative is going to be to celebrate your father's 90th? Um, it's really celebrating his, what would have been his 90th year and his legacy of all of the camps. We're doing three major galas, one in Los Angeles, one in New York City, and one in London. We're, uh, all of the camps are doing their own celebrations. And then we're doing a, you know, a fundraising initiative and a kind of outreach initiative throughout the year. So it's it's going to be pretty fun. And I think... You know, Dad, the legacy of of the camps were it, it so extraordinarily important to him uh, that the camps continue doing what they're doing, and um, because we provide all of the camps and and all of the programs free of charge, you know, unfortunately we have to do some serious fundraising, and we support a lot of kids and families. So, you know, it's. It's a big, it's a big job, and I think he would be really proud that we would be using something as important as his 90th year to to celebrate what he considered to be so, you know, our kids who are so extraordinary. Wow! And your whole organization sounds extraordinary, and really, uh, Clea, thanks so much for sharing uh, with us today. Uh, Serious Fun Children's Network, uh, Serious Fun. Network.org is the website that you can go to for more information. And um, good luck in that year. Um, I'd love to follow you and maybe participate in some of the stuff because it sounds really good. Clea, oh, I yeah. love that. 
Yeah, Clea Newman. She's the youngest daughter of uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and uh, Senior Director of Special Initiatives at Serious Fun Children's Network. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much, Catherine, and have a great holiday. Yeah, you too. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jane Mosbacher Morris. Uh, our topic today is to the market, online marketplace for survivor-made goods. Uh, this was founded by award-winning Jane Mosbacher Morris, who is the former member of the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Counterterrorism and Director of Humanitarian Action for the McCain Institute for International Leadership. She is the founder and CEO of To the Market, Survivor-Made Goods, a social enterprise focused on the promotion of goods made by and stories told by survivors of conflict, abuse, and disease. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Jane. 
Thank you for having me. Well, as you know, we we're just talking a little bit before you got on the air, but uh, it's really quite a unique, I'm, I'm calling it a project. Uh, and as a social worker, obviously, I'm intrigued by it. Exactly, first of all, how did, how did it come about? What, how did this whole enterprise start? Did it come from you? Or give us, you know, talk to us about the inception of this online marketplace for survivor-made goods and to obviously tell us what it is. Let's describe it. Sure. So I started my career in uh, national security working at the State Department. And I was focused on elevating the role of women in security-related issues. And what I found very quickly was that it was very difficult to manufacture a power base for women um, if they didn't have any economic independence or any form of sort of economic security. And this really began... um, the wheels turning because I began to think, um, how uh, is our government, which is where I was working at that time, and how is um, the not-for-profit community focusing on creating these opportunities for economic independence for um, these vulnerable communities, especially women? And unfortunately, I wasn't saying many examples of sustainable models that I felt like were creating these opportunities for these communities. And so um, a, long, uh, a long journey with stops at um, doing a, a master's in business administration at, at Columbia and then um, working for the McCain Senator and Mrs. McCain's um, nonprofit, I uh, finally ended on um, creating my own social enterprise called To the Market. And it's a uh, um, uh, has three focus areas. One one focus area is um, trying to help survivors of abuse, conflict, and disease to sell the products that they are making um, so that they can generate an income. So that's part one. Part two is we work with the survivors to help tell their stories, um, to help raise awareness about um, the challenges um, that they face, but maybe even more importantly, about their future um, and what they're looking forward to in their lives and in their children's lives. And then the third piece is um, to the market actually helps to um, provide business-related feedback um, to these co-ops of survivors so that they can essentially sell more product and earn more money. So we provide things like trend forecasting, which gives them insight into what types of products will be selling well in the U.S. market for the next season, and we also provide um, some basic mental health services so that these co-ops can be managed more effectively um, and and try to sort of work through many of the most common mental health challenges that manifest among the survivor communities with which uh, we work. So talk to us about what countries, who are the partners, what countries are you you, uh, working with, uh, number one, and also, how you know, walk us through it. What do you do? How do you identify these women? I mean, you're there, and I don't female survivors. We're talking about. I want to emphasize that female survivors of conflict, abuse, and disease. Uh, how do you identify them? What countries are we talking about? And uh, you know, give us a step by step of of how you would do this within a particular with a particular market. Sure. So we work with co-ops that have already been formed. So we actually um, identify co-ops that have already been started um, of communities of different types of survivors. We focus on survivors of abuse, which is, um, includes sexual assault, human trafficking, domestic violence. We focus on uh, survivors of conflict, 
So refugees, internally displaced persons, and war widows, and then survivors of disease. So folks that are living with HIV AIDS, um, we have one co-op that employs lepers. We have another co-op um, that employs uh, women in Kenya that are deaf. And so the co-op already has to be started. Um, and then what to the market does um, is we uh, form a relationship. We verify their focus. We verify that the co-ops are following um, what, you know, we have agreed to as as fair um, a living wage and and um, sort of a, a fair uh, income model for um, the participants in that co-op, and then uh, we to the market help to distribute the products through multiple distribution channels. Um, so we have launched our online marketplace to the market.com that was just launched a couple of weeks ago where anyone in the U.S. can go online and support survivors by purchasing the products that they have made. And we also do pop-up shops so where we are, are setting up um, and selling products at, at different conferences and sometimes even um, doing house parties. And then we also do custom sourcing. So if somebody is wanting to have corporate gifts that reflect their mission or, or their focus, um, we can help source that from different co-ops from around the world. Jane, you're talking about countries like Uganda, Ethiopia, India, uh-huh. Kenya, um, and these co-ops exist in those different countries. My question is, if I mean, there must be major cultural differences in each of these countries, even if these women, say, have suffered from the same kinds of abuses, whether it's disease or physical or mental abuse, but the, how do you break through the cultural barriers? I mean, they, for instance, I'm taking physical abuse and, you know, the, the, um, the countries that are very, I'll use the word uh, patriarchal, I don't know if that's the word, but uh, how do you break through some of those attitudes towards women that say women shouldn't even be allowed to do this kind of work and selling their goods and making money and becoming independent? Well, um, it's definitely a challenge because there are not only uh, challenges around um, gender in many of the countries in which we're working, but there are also challenges around stigma, Um, stigma around disease, stigma around disability, um, just a whole variety of challenges that, that present themselves and, of course, exist within the co-ops that we work with in the United States. So it's certainly not, um, you know, we're certainly not, as Americans, immune to those challenges ourselves. Um, I, I would say that something that is helpful for to the market is that, as I mentioned, we, we really focus with existing co-ops that have already um formed um, and established themselves, and they've created a safe space to um, share common um, experiences and heal together um, because many of the co-ops have such specific experiences that um, the women participate in small group therapy, and um, it's the time that they're spending together working and also healing um, that that is really transformational. Yeah, so... When you say you, you start with existing co-ops, so I guess you've already on some level overcome some of those barriers because they already exist. Uh, can you take tell us, give us a, an example, a specific example, maybe if with a, you know, a, a specific product and a 
co-op, a successful and maybe one that was more difficult to achieve, you know, some of the the very specific difficulties that you've had to deal with with each one of these these women, these survivors. Uh, Maybe we could take an example of disease, and you talk about the stigmas uh, associated with disease as well as just stigma associated with uh, abuse and and sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence, for instance. Um, I don't want to say a case history, but that's kind of my background as a social worker, but but, uh, specific examples. Sure. So um, one of the the most, I know you said specific, but one of the most consistent um, challenges that we face is um, just really helping uh, the women get to a place where they are taking care of themselves. Um, and I that sounds very basic, but what we find is that when they begin to have an opportunity to earn an income, um, they almost immediately begin to take care of their children, um, which is, I think, um, parents' instincts, maybe especially mothers' instincts, um, but, but are um, a, a bit challenged by... Um, focusing on themselves and, and really working through some of the trauma um, that many of them have experienced. And, and that's beyond just survivors of abuse. That could be the trauma associated with being in a conflict zone or even the tra- trauma of diagnoses. Um, many, you know, many of the HIV AIDS positive women that we work with um, had no, no idea that uh, they were HIV AIDS positive and, and many had actually contracted um, the disease from their husband. Um, and it was not until their husband passed away from the disease that they learned that they had it as well. Um, and so the, the, the stories are, um, you know, diverse depending on the type of trauma that the survivor has um, lived through. Um, but I'd say one of the most consistent challenges is the fact that um, they don't want to focus on themselves. They want to so immediately focus on their children. And um, what we tell them is that, you know, you can't, you can't be a good mother um, if you can't, uh, you can't take, a mother, take care of your children if you can't take care of yourself. Yeah, so that's one of the outcomes I, that one would expect that. I, uh, you know, that's that, I guess that example they always give, you know, putting the mask or the oxygen mask over your face in the airplane before you do it. Absolutely. Uh, for your, you have to take care of yourself. And, and, you know, that's a hard lesson to learn. I think he, even here in the United States, mothers who don't suffer some of these, I mean, the horrific indignities that these women have suffered still have that issue. So, um, so anyway, that's obviously a very positive outcome. So the children do better. The families do better. It, it just has a snowballing effect because these women feel good about themselves and also providing income to their families. How much does it raise their income? Let's say, uh, for, for example, do you have uh, examples in dollars and cents in some of these uh, countries? Uh, you know, it's really difficult to measure because many of them, you know, when you're saying raised income, yeah. um, many of them, let's say they've been trafficked, um, there's really no way to sort of properly quantify um, what they've had to endure to make money for somebody else. Um, So for many, many of these women, I would say most of these women, this is their first time to earn an income period. And so the opportunity to be a part of um, mostly women-led co-ops is is very, very transformational for them and is sort of um, in, in their life experience a zero to 60. Well, you just, you know, started this, obviously, it's your entrepreneurial uh, new endeavor, or um, 
Any major surprises to you? I mean, you had certain expectations, obviously, I'm sure, and objectives. Uh, anything that uh, in the beginning stood in your way that you didn't expect that you that was a, a major uh, obstacle that you had to overcome to get this going, this to the market? Well, as with most um most startups, everything takes longer than uh, you think it will take. And even so if you have an MBA from Columbia. <laughs> even with an MBA. I yeah. mean, I think that um, maybe especially with an MBA. Okay. Um, I, I think um, something that has been um, interesting um, has been uh, sort of testing my patience, essentially, and, and sort of um, being willing to um, trust that, things will grow um, in time um, and, and accepting the fact that not everything is going to happen instantly, especially if you decide that, um, you know, you don't want to go out and raise a bunch of money and that's in the not-for-profit space or in the for-profit space. Um, the expression is bootstrapping, meaning that you're sort of step-by-step um, step taking, you know, investing your own money um, and trying to create um, a, a model that doesn't require a tremendous amount of capital. And so um, because that's the direction that to the market has taken where we haven't had investors, uh, it has been, um, you know, slow growth. And, and that has been, on a personal level, sort of a wonderful um, exercise uh, in my patience. So uh, self-awareness on your part. What about, Jane, the people that you have to surround yourself with to accomplish this, obviously you have to. You have a group of, of people, women, all women, or um, is it? Or who? I don't want to answer the question. Who are they? Who are the people? You know, to get this thing going to the market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm um, extraordinarily fortunate that I have an amazing family. Um, I have an incredibly supportive husband. I have an incredibly support uh, supportive parents. And, um, you know, extraordinary friends. And it really has been uh, a group effort. And whether it's providing advice on a specific um, business-related question I've had or um, leveraging some of my former colleagues from the State Department when I need to better understand a specific community within a country or a specific social issue, uh, it really has um, been a group effort. And so I feel um, just so grateful for all of the, the assistance that um, those around me have provided. Within the to-the-market structure, we have pieced together uh, both uh, a number of senior advisors um, from both the, the not-for-profit community and the for-profit community, um, as well as an advisory board that all provide different types of feedback, um, whether it's around um, amplifying you know, amplifying the stories of the survivors, what are effective ways to do so, or it's around, you know, business operations, um, how do we look at our supply chain? I mean, just the whole, uh, spans the whole gamut. Um, but I'm really, really proud of the team that we've put together. Uh, I think it really reflects all the different focus areas that, that um, to the market has um, under our umbrella. So ranging from the, the mental health services piece to, um, you know, the e-commerce piece. I'm interested in the mental health piece, obviously. Um, talk to us more about that. What is the? How do you deliver that service? Let's say, and maybe it's different in each one of these countries that are uh, these partnering uh, countries. Um, you know, specifically, because um, obviously there's going to be a need for mental health services. How do you do that? So one of the the um, reasons that I decided to focus on uh, partnering with co-ops that 
employed survivors exclusively was when I went through the due diligence phase of, of learning more about um, the different co-ops around the world that were employing, whether it was women artisans or fair trade artisans or um, whatever it was, one of the things that I found when talking to the survivor-specific co-ops was the, the degree to which mental health challenges manifested in the workplace. And um, there are three in particular that, that were most common. Um, one is anxiety, um, one is depression, and one is um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, very, uh, very common throughout the co-ops, whether we were working in um, the United States or Afghanistan or somewhere in between. And so uh, one of the things that to the market thought about is, well, what are the ways that we can work with these different co-ops in a scalable way um, that we can provide uh, a certain level of services that um, we can afford to provide, um, but that is sort of culturally um, helpful um, despite, you know, the many differences that exist across, um, across, across our globe. And what we decided to uh, at least start with was providing very basic managers to the managers information to the managers of these co-ops, so almost like a train-the-trainer method. And what we do is we provide um, sort of what is anxiety? What does it look like? What are the triggers? Um, what can you do as a layperson? Because, you know, as within the general population, the vast majority of, you know, the managers of these, these co-ops um, are not psychologists. They're not psychiatrists. They're not social workers. Um, they are laypeople, and so they are um, not trained necessarily at respect responding to some of these dynamics that they're seeing. And so um, our sort of first effort on the mental health area is to really try to educate the managers of these co-ops to say, these are these different um, challenges that you're seeing. This is what it looks like. This is how it might be impacting the survivors, um, everything from morale um, to, you know, their their desire to, to produce uh, quality pr products, um, and here are some things that you can do, again, as a layperson, uh, to help. So it's a train-the-trainer kind of situation, which works well. It works well in the United States, that model, as, 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 uh, in my experience anyway. And so you really are able to use it in, I guess, all of these countries, these partnering countries. You mentioned also earlier in the, you'd also this is to the market is in the United States as well in, in different communities? That's correct, yes. We have a number of different uh, co-ops or organizations within the United States that we have partnered with um, at different points. Although I would say that the model um, of producing products um, within sort of a co-op community is much less common in the United States than it is overseas. But yes, we do um, have um, a number of different U.S.-based partners. And so where are they? Who are they? Well, yeah, so um, one of our partners is actually a um, a shelter in Lexington, Kentucky, um, where I live, and it's called Greenhouse 17, and I'm really, really proud of them. They, uh, within the last several months, just launched um, a really incredible line of different sort of bath-related products, um, things like lip balm and soap um, that the survivors are making, um, and then they are packaging and selling um, online, and we're selling in our pop-up shops. Um, and they're also selling um, on Etsy. So it's creating this terrific um, revenue stream while this domestic violence um, shelter has um, 
the residents while they're in the shelter, they're able to participate in these income generating activities um, so that when they sort of transition out of the shelter, they have a little bit um, of, of money um, to, to make some decisions about their next steps. There's also a wonderful organization that we have done some pop-ups with called uh, Elegant Peas, which actually is based um, in New York City and employs human trafficking survivors um, in the New York area. Um, and they sew um, different shirts, and um, those shirts are also uh, available online. Um, and then there's actually another co-op, um, the V Bella Jewelry, which is another one on our site um, that has survivors that are making different jewelry pieces. And so just a variety of uh, skill sets re- reflected in the products. Well, and you've also, the products, well, the three that you described, the, the jewelry and the shirts and the soap products are feminine products sort of in the sense that the jewelry and and soaps and shirts and is that pretty consistent throughout the different countries similar kinds of of products that kind of reflect that feminine um I don't know what you would call it kind of the feminine interest the feminine touch absolutely i mean something that i'm really proud of is that many of the products if not most of the products reflect the culture um, from which the from which the co-op um, or with in which the co-op is operating, um, and so when you look at some of our pieces from East Africa, you can see really incredible, vibrant fabrics um, and really beautiful beading. And you know, you can look at some of our products out of India or South Asia, and you see these extraordinary embroidery um, or the use of recycled saris. Um, which is, is uh, I think, so important because in, in so many parts of the world, um, the art of handicraft is dying off. Um, so it's really sort of lovely that um, this is creating an opportunity for these co-ops to preserve um, this cultural tradition um, of producing products that um, reflect their communities. Where if uh, someone was interested in, and they're listening to the show um, and wanting to get involved in, into the market, um, is there a place for them to connect with you or connect with to the market, um, volunteer jobs uh, or online, you know, can they do this online or is that a possibility? Absolutely. So our website is, to the market, tovmarket.com, and um, you can support these survivors through purchasing products that they've made by um, volunteering to work with us, um, by helping to get the word out, by um, using social media and telling your friends that they can buy survivor-made products to support these causes. Um, request a pop-up shop. We're happy to you and um, share our story and share some of these products. Um, so there's lots of ways for folks to get involved, and we encourage you to read out, reach out to us. There are a number of places on our website, tothemarket.com, um, that allow you to contact us. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think you've mentioned it several times in the interview, but telling one story, you really have to tell the story, and that's, you know, to get people to to become engaged. And I imagine, obviously, each one of these uh, co-ops, as well as each one of the individuals, the women and their families, have a story to tell. Uh, now, I don't want to, we only have a couple minutes, but anything for the future that uh, that's in the making right now that you may want to share with us? Well, we continue to think about um, how we can create 
additional distribution channels for survivor-made goods. And so as we launched our online marketplace um, in in mid-November, our sort of next step potentially um, would be looking to have wholesale relationships. Um, And so that's something that I'm really excited about pursuing once I feel like the e-commerce place, the e-commerce site is in a good place, is beginning to partner with different brands and different stores um, that are interested in these issues and they want to support this model of um, economic independence for these communities. Well, it's exciting work, and I am. I, I thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Uh, for listeners, I've been talking to Jane Mosbacher, Morris, founder and CEO of To the Market Survivor Made Goods, a social enterprise focused on the promotion of goods made by and stories told by survivors of conflict, abuse, and disease. And you can go to to the market dot com for more information and and get onto their website. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jane. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 